Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. It is my great honor to have the Luann and Larry Temple Professorship in the Humanities and Professor of Philosophy and Chair of the Department of Philosophy, David Sosa, with me here today. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's great to be here. Gosh, there's just so much about your work that is got my brain going all over the place. Um, but before we get into maybe some more nitty-gritty stuff of analytic philosophy, the all of the questions you've been asking and looking for answers to uh, in ethics, in you know all of these areas, metaphysics, epistemology that you're interested in. Let me ask you, gosh, I, you have, I mean, just looking from a, outside of your life's really uh, like a real story to tell here. You know, your your dad was a philosopher at Rutgers, and before that at Brown uh, from Cuba. Um, uh, you went to Brown, uh, went to Princeton, all these amazing things. But yeah, I I guess you know maybe we can start somewhere in there okay yeah sure yeah, if you want to hear a little bit i'm happy to to share you know my parents came over from cuba pre-revolution uh, in search of a better life um batista was still you know in charge uh some or another member of that family uh as they often were over there and um settled eventually in miami as so many did um my dad actually had done a detour through el paso because my grandfather, paternal grandfather, was a Presbyterian minister, strangely, um, had been discovered in Cuba by um, missionaries, brought over to Georgia. Um, that's way back, you know, that we're talking 20s. And uh, but anyway, so they he had gone to El Paso uh, on behalf of the church. And so they had spent time in El Paso, but they ended up in Miami and met at church in Miami. And um so that's where it started, you know, and then uh, he went to, you know, he was at the University of Miami studying, ended up studying philosophy, went to grad school, and then eventually got a job at Brown. And so I was born in Providence and uh, the son of a philosopher. And uh, so it's sort of the family business. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's a strange thing for a couple of young Cubans to be in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, you know, in the early 60s, but there they were. Uh, and so, you know, they adjusted and, um, and we got lucky, you know, the fact is a lot of it is dumb luck, you know, various things happened that in some sense, there was no reason uh, for them to happen, but, um, I'm grateful for their having taken advantage of things the way they did and for giving me the opportunities they did. I know that was, you know, that's very much the immigrant mentality of giving opportunities to your children, um, that you didn't have. And they, um, they did a lot of that to both me and my brother. And, um, so we're grateful for that. That's, that's a bit of a backstory. Really wonderful, David. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. Um, how how did you experience as, well, yeah, as the son of Cuban immigrants, you know, Latinidad or Latinoness, yeah. or did you, was it something, because sometimes we, you know, when our parents are kind of fleeing a bad situation, yeah. sometimes they you know, try to distance themselves from that. And, 
you know, see that opportunities for the next generation comes with, um, you know, really kind of severing that. But tell me your experience. Right. It, it was, it, there was a bit of that in a way. It's complicated. You know, I think neither of my parents are, are especially sort of political animals in an important sense. And so, but, you know, they're very much family animals. And so what ended up happening was given the academic calendar, we would summer in Miami every summer. So end of, you know, graduation day at Brown, end of May, we'd get in the station wagon. It's kind of like, you know, Chevy Chase, you know, and we, we get in the station wagon with, you know, the side, you know, the fake wood panels on this LTD, drive down to Miami all along I-95. And then I'd spend three months in Miami with the family and, you know, cafecito and, you know, Pancuano and the whole, the full Cuban bigness, you know, that Miami offered you and, you know, can you sing Everything. And then come the end of the summer, it's time to drive up to Providence, Rhode Island, of all places, where I went to a private school, which just had no idea. I mean, it just, it, it was as, it just didn't figure on their radar. I was just a kid who was a little bit too loud, a little bit too arrogant, a little bit off, you know, hadn't gone to the right schools before that school. And so it was a little bit of a pain and, um, but, and, you know, and I definitely felt a bit of a misfit. Oh, you know, you sort of learn how to cope. Um, but it was just a complete, there was no Cuban in Providence. And, you know, with my parents, it was more about, you know, we, we spoke in English and yeah, my mom made, you know, you know, she made Cuban food all the time, canitas and all that kind of stuff. So we ate still, uh, but we also, you know, ordered pizza and, you know, we just became American in Providence. And then we drove down to Miami and resumed our Cuban experience. So it was sort of living two worlds, I guess, would be the way to put it. We didn't completely separate off, but we kind of, compart- I guess we'd say compartmentalize, I guess would be the way to describe it. Wow. Yeah. Really interesting, really amazing um, and important. Um, tell me, you've got on the track, of course, um, dad being an important philosopher mm-hmm. and following in, in those footsteps. Um, and let me ask you this for listeners who might not be familiar um, in a nutshell, what you kind of f- fell into analytic philosophy, not continental philosophy. Um, what are, you know, what are these two branches? Yeah. You know, it, it, it sounds like a, um, it's a good question and it sounds like a not that complicated question, but actually it is a complicated question because the question of what makes for that distinction really is, you know, is fraught and it's controversial. Um, I think, um, you know, some of it consists in who counts as the heroes of, you know, who, who you take as the model for how you do philosophy, the way you do it, the, the questions you engage, um, what you're looking for in doing philosophy. So sort of where the methodology is, you know, what it's oriented towards. Um, those are some of the things. And, and But to give it more content, um, you know, there's a kind of Anglo, uh, Anglo, Anglo-oriented aspect to analytic philosophy. Whereas continental philosophy, it's there in the name, is more oriented toward the continent, more oriented toward France and Germany. I think the distinction only really makes sense after Kant, basically, after Immanuel Kant. So after 1800, you only start to see the division. Um, And 
and then it, it sort of accelerates, you know, in the 20th century, in the 1900s, you start with, so I think Bertrand Russell would be a key figure in sort of accelerating the distinction. So if you do philosophy sort of in the tradition that goes through Bertrand Russell and then kind of skips Hegel and goes back to Kant, and then everyone gets back together again. You know, we, we're all together around Descartes and, you know, Barclay and Spinoza and Locke and Hume and, and then, you know, further back into, you know, Aristotle and Plato. Um, and, you know, I skipped a lot of things, obviously, but, you know, those are some of the big names. And in that kind of history, we're all together. But after, you know, with Hegel, you start to see a movement in the continent toward what ends up getting con continental philosophy, whereas later, you know, with certain idealists and then post-idealist uh, British philosophy, you get the kind of beginning of what you might call the analytic tradition. And um, so that's a kind of, so people say, well, you know, um, continental philosophy is more literary, it's more interested in style, it's more interested in a synthesis, um, it's more continuous with literature itself, you know, it, it seeks to be excellent literature in its product. Um, whereas analytic philosophy is more, well, it's more analytic, it looks to break things down more than it looks to synthesize. Um, it has, tends to take up narrower foci, you know, it focuses on smaller issues in a way, rather than kind of contending with the big questions directly. Um, these, these are, you know, sort of broad overgeneralizations, but they're sort of useful to kind of get you into the, the spirit of the distinction. Um, one characteristic is that analytic philosophy wants to use formal tools. Um, often, you know, wants to use logic and elements of the, that have been, you know, tools that have been developed in the philosophy of language. Language is an important aspect of doing analytic philosophy. Some people think, in fact, there was what people call a linguistic turn, which then sort of left its stamp on analytic philosophy. So you do, you engage questions by, engage questions about reality by engaging questions about language. Um, some people say that's characteristic. I actually think that's kind of a mistake myself, but so, you know, any, any aspect of these ways of characterizing the distinction can be challenged, you know, they can, you can, you know, they, they get to be complex. Um, but I think they give you a bit of the flavor of the distinction. You know, you, you brought up some really interesting points. Um, and I'm going to ask you in a minute to say why you think um, language might not be the avenue necessarily to pursue questions of say reality. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this, you did work under Mark Johnston and yeah. at Princeton and um, of course, interest in cognitive science, as you mentioned, these sort of analytic tools. Um, what, you know, where is kind of, where is something like cognitive science coming into analytic philosophy? Yeah. So um, that's one of these places where the nature of analytic philosophy is itself, you know, in dispute and um, and problematic. There is a big, um, there's kind of a, a movement within, or anyway, a swath or a group or a, a part of analytic philosophy that's very interested in being continuous with science. Um, views analytic philosophy as, in a way, at least cooperating with science, maybe even in the service of science, um, and. So um, there is the part of the philosophy of mind specifically, which sees itself as having to be um, responding to, integrated with, um, and involved with cognitive science, with the scientific study of, uh, 
um, the intellect of the mind, of the brain, uh, if those are different, and in, in a way tends to want to minimize, um, though it doesn't necessarily, even cognitive science doesn't necessarily eliminate, but does want to minimize, tend to minimize the distinction between, let's say, the mind and the brain, for example. And so um, there's, you know, one confronts the question when one goes into the philosophy of mind, you know, eventually or implicitly or sometimes right away and explicitly, whether one is a cognitive scientist um, in some sense, as much as one is a philosopher of mind. But there's also other views, you know, people, people also think, no, no, that's a huge mistake. Actually, um, uh, there's no question that, you know, there's still dualistic, what we'd call dualistic elements who think that, um, who think that no, the study of the mind can only be conducted uh, in a way that's ultimately fundamentally discontinuous from the ways we can study um, the brain. And so, yeah, um, you know, don't, uh, you know, should note that Mark Johnson that I studied with at Princeton is not the metaphor guy, um, FYI, you know, he's also very much a philosopher mind and, you know, would study, you know, but um, but he was, he was sort of a metaphysician, very interested in um, the identity of, uh, very interested in the question of identity. And so, you know, he's certainly interested in the relation between the mind and the brain. That was a big part of our work together. Um, but I think that's, a, you know, it's worth knowing that um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't work with someone who is, you know, into metaphor in the way that Mark Johnson is. Uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm glad you made that important distinction. Um, and of course, you, you you are your own person and your own, you know, mind brain um, asking your own questions. Um, it is interesting you mentioned, you know, Bertrand Russell, because of course, you know, his, his you know, his, on several occasions talks about the constant movement of themes and subjects from philosophy to science as knowledge develops and becomes more solid. So it's not surprising that this is, you know, something that is, that you brought up and that's a central concern, right? For sure. Um, so, uh, you know, you've got these, uh, you know, incredibly, uh, this vast uh, number of um, articles, this, uh, cor- these incredible courses that I, I would love to take. Um but let me ask you a couple of things. Um, ethics, you know, gosh, I mean, I know ethics is just huge, you know, and we can go everywhere and anywhere with that. But let me ask you a simple question, um, both as someone who has raised kids and also who works on this professionally. Um, is ethics, I mean, is this a kind of growing of mind? Is this a, is this an education, say, if we want to, bring in Bertrand Russell again, um, or even Aristotle. Um, and how, I mean, in a way, I don't know if it's, I guess, how can we ground that question in everyday practices? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard. I'll be honest with you. I think, um, if anything, um, we should be more hesitant even than we are in, um, presupposing that ethical questions are sort of revealed um, in ordinary practical circumstance. I think in a way, the ethics of any ordinary practical circumstance is actually invested into it um, by the mind's confrontation with it. And um, it's not revealed within it in its its sort of immediate natural form. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so that's just a a general thought. I mean, I I think it's very hard. I mean, I think it's... um, 
I, I myself, I feel like there's a lot of something like arrogance about ethics in the sense that um, I think we should all be a little hesitant to make claims, ethical claims. Um, I think we should maybe rest a bit earlier with something like um, the expression of the finding of something as ethically relevant, um, finding oneself moved ethically by a certain consideration. I mean, I think even that, even that can be questioned, but um, that's a, a slightly safer. I say, look, I'm, I'm moved by this. I find this to be very powerful. Um, but I think one should be hesitant to then uh, move from that, you know, from the fact that there is this ethical consideration, which is very significant, and which weighs with one, to a judgment to say, well, therefore, this is what's right. Um, and that's wrong. And, and find it. Because there's just, it's, you know, it's so subtle, the way in which considerations can interact with each other in the determination of the ethical status of an action or a behavior of a principle or a practice. Um, there's just a very complex structure of considerations. And um, often one needs to just, uh, I think, be honest with oneself and others that one is sort of taking a shot in something like the dark, you know, under very limited light levels of clarity um, when saying, well, look, I'm just, I'm thinking this is wrong. And then let me tell you what is really moving me. It's this sort of consideration. This is what's got me going. This is why I think that's wrong. You know, I get it that that consideration weighs the other way. I don't, I don't, I don't treat that consideration as null. Um, ultimately, um, you know, I think this consideration weighs more heavily. I'm, I'm moved by that more so but I appreciate that, that that would weigh in the opposite direction. But people are, I think one is very, one wants simplicity, one wants clarity. Uh, it's hard to maintain opposing uh, views um, or at least, uh, you know, opposing considerations. And, and it's not like I'm saying, oh, people are bad. I mean, you know, I'm just saying this is hard. And so we all confront it. And, um, and so I'm just, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like we need to try to be honest about the fact that ethics is really hard and it's ultimately a matter of, the weighing of reasons or something like that. Mm -hmm. There, uh, you know, I, I speak, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there are three main threads when we ask that question and you published consequences of consequentialism, mm -hmm. consequentialism being one of those. And then the deontological, right. the eye for the eye type thing. And then the, the, of course, virtue ethics, but so if I'm hearing you right, um, those are useful conceptually, but in in practice, we see a whole tangle of of yeah. them. But yeah. is that what I'm hearing? I think that's, that's that's definitely right. How exactly to use any one of those, let's call them eth normative ethical theories, um, how to deploy them in an actual circumstance, um, even leaving aside the question of how to choose among them, you know, so. Let's leave them all sort of pending. I don't know which one is the right normative theory, one of them or other, or maybe some mix of some of them. But anyway, um, look, I have to decide whether to give these, you know, $100 to this philanthropic, or I need to know whether to say to my kid, yeah, go ahead and stay out with your friends later. Or I have to say, you know, choose this or rather than that. Or um, And how do I now confront, you know, in a detailed way, the reality, you know, contextually, resolved set of circumstances um it's it's massively subtle and um and but the people just think oh, that would be wrong and i think well you know that's i think there's a lot of something like arrogance 
um, that I I think a, a slightly more um, something you know an old fashioned skeptical in a, an old fashioned sense that is uh, a point of view from which one is hesitant um, to make judgment. Um, where one maintains a certain level of suspension of belief about a lot of things is advisable. David, you, but, you know, teach who might advise. Yeah, no, it's I'm with you completely. Um, important to make conceptual distinctions, and yet also important for us to be reminded constantly of the kind of messiness of life. Um, yeah. You teach a course, The Varieties of Meaning, which sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, and, you know, you look at the nature of communication um, and, and, gosh, you know, communication. Uh, it seems like that's maybe one of the heart of the problems that we're facing today, yep. the kind of wolf pack Twitter spheres and the tribalism and all that stuff feels like you find your spot and you send your messages knowing that you're going to get your echo board sounding board back. Um, but tell me, tell me, you know, what you, where your students go with you in this, in this, yeah. something like this. Yeah. So, you know, um, what I hope to, what I hope to accomplish with the students in the seminar is to gain some understanding of the relationship between uh, thought and, um, you know, let's call it embodied communication. So actually like talking to each other, like really, you know, like the way we are having a discussion um, or, but, and the examples you gave are also examples. So, um, you know, um, what is the relationship between those two things? And I think there's, there has been in philosophy um, forever, uh, something like a presupposition that there's a very close relationship between those things that in a way, what, what we do when we have a discussion uh, or when we post, you know, on Twitter or when we tweet or we, we post something on Facebook or something, there's a kind of expression of our thought. There's a kind of putting your thought into words. Ideally, at least there's that ideal. There's that possibility. That's, that's sort of what the instrument of language is for. It's to, to enable the expression of thought. And um, so the mechanisms that are involved in meaningfulness uh, for thought, the way a thought is meaningful and the way language is meaningful, they're going to be very intimately related. There's not going to be really two questions of meaningfulness. There's not going to be two ways in which a thing can be meaningful. And that's going to, you know, that encourages a certain kind of ambition and optimism, which is a sort of unified theory of meaningfulness, the very idea of meaningfulness, the phenomenon of meaningfulness for language and thought. And in a way, what that seminar was dedicated to and what a lot of my work lately has been oriented toward is toward um, uh, enabling an alternative perspective on that, where we don't presuppose that these are intimately related phenomena, that really the meaningfulness of language and language use and the kind of phenomena you were talking about is fundamentally different in kind, independent, actually, ultimately. There's not even a real continuity between it and the way in which thoughts are meaningful. And um, this creates a kind of you know, disconnect, a kind of duality, a kind of divergence. And um, you know, that's troubling because we want unity and you know, understanding is sometimes encouraged by unities because we can bring together. Um, but the view I'm interested in developing is one where there's an important distinction 
And um, and then, you know, and we can go into details about how and why, but basically I think there's a ton of philosophical virtue to that distinction. It enables us to make sense of a bunch of things that are hard to make sense of otherwise. Do we, can we, do we think then without language or outside of language? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's right. So that's a good question. That, that sort of gets to the heart of it. I mean, you know, you say, you, you know, in a way what you're telling me is you say they're independent. So then either is possible without the other. And, um, you know, this isn't a philosophy class. So I'll just take the bait. Yes. I think thought is possible without language and language is possible without thought. You know, I think there's some sense in which, you know, the bees communicate. They, they have something like a language, the dance. Um, is meaningful. It represents the way I'm even tempted, you know, these, these sort of metaphorical claims about, you know, the language of nature, the language of, you know, there, there's a kind of language, you know, there's something linguistic about the way fire is represented by smoke. You know, when people say smoke means fire or, you know, those, those spots mean measles, you know, um, I, in a way kind of take that literally, I think, no, that's right. Those, those spots do mean measles. And it's that kind of way of being meaningful that I think ultimately language is. I think the way spots mean meals is the way a Twitter, you know, a tweet is meaningful. And I think that's fundamentally different from the way thoughts are meaningful. Um, they are not meaningful that way. They have a different way of being meaningful. And um, so, yeah, and, and so you can think and have a, have a meaningful thoughts, you know, be engaged in in thinking with all that that involves um, without um, being part in any sense of the word of a linguistic practice without using language and vice versa. You can be, you know, using language and part of linguistic practice without actually I should be careful. It's not really using language. It's you can be involved in a, in a linguistic practice. See, I think using language again, introduces the phenomenon of a mind at work. And so then you're back into the domain of intellectual activity of a certain distinctive sort. And so I don't know that that bees are really using language. They're they're involved in linguistic practices, but that involvement is not one of their, so to speak, exploiting language. Um, they're just instantiating linguistic practices. Their their dancing is not something they undertake, but it is something they do. And in the doing of the dance, they communicate, but they don't communicate intentionally. We do communicate intentionally, um, but that intentional communication involves, you know, an attempt to exploit this tool, which has its features in by in order to express this other phenomenon, which is thought. So there's a, there's still the duality. Yeah, no, that's really really important and exciting um yeah. really important and exciting to, yeah, to for for these distinctions um um david let me ask uh, a last question about you know your teaching and then we'll move into just you know what's on your kind of the proverbial nightstand what are you reading that's exciting for you um and it could be any whatever it is um in your field outside of your field okay. um so you do teach an environmental ethics course, yeah. and that must be very exciting and surprising, even maybe for the students. Um, but wait, um, I got to stop. I should I should hold you up right away because I, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I was um, a kind of super. I was in a supervisory role uh, with that class, 
it, I was not the instructor, I was the instructor of record and I had responsibility, ultimate responsibility for the class, um, which I took seriously, but that was a very special circumstance. And so I, uh, I hesitate to um, well, use that as a let as representative. Me, no, I'm glad you clarified. Let me ask you just off yeah. the top though, given that in the end, things are are messier than than they may seem. Yeah. Um, maybe more simple, but then ultimately messier. Um, can we, you know, I mean, we do kind of at a certain moment have to kind of take a stand like, you know, animal rights or, uh, you know, climate change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, let's, let's move this conversation outside of the classroom for a okay. second and just, yeah. you know, as I guess, as a philosopher and as a human being, um, how do we, how do we articulate those kinds of positions given that on the one hand things, um, I like the way you very clearly articulated a, of a, an important distinction between, you know, thought and communication of thought, um, and language, but how, and then, you know, we went back to ethics. What, what, where do we stand on this kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm often like some of my, you know, my family, you know, they say you're so indecisive and, and I, I get it. You're right. We can't, you know, in some sense, uh, inaction is a kind of action. And, um, you know, and, and you may say, no, look, I'm, I'm not acting. I'm still considering. And they'll say, well, in the meantime, you know, stuff's happening. And I, I do think there are these weird questions that I'm not entirely at peace with about, for example, temporal relations and relations of causation. I mean, causation is just happening anyway. You know, causes change is happening and forces are impinging, you know, are, are impinging on circumstances and, you know, people are suffering and stuff's happening. And in the meantime, you're sort of outside of time and, and causal reality contemplating and weighing considerations and weighing reasons. And in the meantime, you know, Rome is burning. And um, so I don't know how to, I don't know what to do because I feel like that, that's an important fact and um, ignoring it is, you know, is sort of at least tragic and maybe evil. And um, so that's no good. So, um, but on the other hand, I also am impressed by the fact that it's very hard for a rational being to move arbitrarily. And so when considerations are still, in some sense, un indeterminate, like I still can't resolve it, I'm finding it hard. And, and some questions are not hard, you know, I, 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 I'm not in any doubt about, you know, climate change, or, you know, so there, there are a lot of questions, you know, or, or other recent political issues that have arisen, you know, I, I find myself resolved on these um, readily. But when there is a, a more difficult ethical or political question, and I'm finding it hard to resolve it. I'm also, and, and I, so I'm finding it hard to move on the question because considerations are still in a balance. Um, I'm also aware that, you know, stuff's going down. And, um, and so there's that disconnect. And that basically, I think what your question is, is pointed toward is, you know, how do you engage reality, you know, physical reality and all of its, all of its, you know, implications, causal implications from the point of view of, you know, weighing, you know, weighing reasons, being hesitant and cautious and humble about the ability to determine the ethical truth, as it were, in the face of all these detailed uh, considerations and circumstances. And I don't really have a good answer. Carefully, you know, sensitively, uh, cautiously, as best I can are the answers. Um, you know, make the call when I can. Uh, 
find oneself uh, forced to make a decision when one might not have because circumstances demand it. Um, Mm -hmm. th those aren't, yeah. you know, those aren't very good answers, but they're the ones I've got. I mean, I just sort of uh, wait for as long as I can and then call it as I see it as best I can, cross my fingers. No, they seem very rational, very human, uh, you know, answers. Um, what's exciting to you and, you know, you, what are you reading? Well, where are you, where's, where are your, where's your mind traveling these days? Well, let's see. Um, I am sort of um, caught up with, uh, I mean, we can talk about a reading, you know, I'd say recent, you know, most favorite recent novel, um, Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, George Saunders. Um, great stuff, great author, exciting stuff. I wrote a great um, kids book, little known, um, something about the gappers of Fripp, I think, is the name of it, strange name, same author. Um, that's kind of how I got onto him, although then later a friend of mine, um, recommended him independently so that that worked out um but um don't do as much fiction reading as i used to or as i like to um but what i'm excited and maybe partly so i get distracted by philosophical questions but um not that those are in any tension uh, i'll admit but just i get distracted and so then i don't do the reading but it would be fun to do what what i'm in, what my where my mind is these days i guess you know one of the questions i'm interested in these days is the relationship between um ethics and aesthetics. Um, they both seem like they're domains of um, something like value or, you know, goodness and badness or goodness and the opposite of badness or um, when things go well and when things are not going well, you know, when things, you know, so aesthetics, you know, they can be, things are ugly um, and things are beautiful. Things are, you know, um, evil or um, uh, virtuous. Um, so there are these distinctions we make in the two domains, and there's a question of whether the structure of those distinctions in the respective domains is analogous or whether they're very different. And um, I find myself um, interested in the question. I find myself a bit troubled by it because on the one hand, I tend to think that domains of you know, that you're obliged, like in, in ethics, I sort of feel like, you know, there are obligations, you must do that, you must not do that. You, there's something um, uh, prohib you know, prohibited, impermissible about, for example, you know, being, viewing, let's say, the pain of another as a reason for doing something, you know, that, that's sort of, you know, that's just evil, that's, that's no, that's not okay, you know, that, and I think of that as ethical, I think there's a very deeply, you know, a, a deep ethical truth is that one must not that the that someone would be hurt by something must not weigh with you as a reason in favor of doing that thing. That's a very deep, you know, I, I can't go much further than to say that that's where kind of reasoning ends. It's just there it is. And the question is whether in the aesthetic domain, whether there's any anything like a similar structure, whether there's any obligations on us in respect of our aesthetic, you know, thinking whether our, the way our intellect, I mean, there's already that question. What is the characteristic intellectual response to aesthetic excellence? So, you know, being impressed by the beauty of a thing. And I don't just mean like, you know, paintings or, I mean, anything. I can even mean just somebody's behavior. You might find that behavior not only good, but also lovely or something. And so, you know, with a very broad conception of what is can be aesthetically wonderful, 
I guess there's something like awe in the face. That's another thing. I'm sort of interested in whether like religion might be a space of aesthetic expression that really what's going on and a lot of what's going on with religion is being awestruck by certain things. And so that maybe that's a useful tool for understanding. But I'm really, it's very early days. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I, I've got almost nothing you know, right now. It's just like little baby steps at the very beginning of an investigation that may take me the rest of my life for all that, or, you know, may not, that may, need, may not be long enough anymore. Uh, but anyway, if you ask me what what's got me going, um, that kind of thing has me going. I sort of feel, you know, I feel like passions, like when people get very passionate, that tends to be, I, I feel like that's not so, I don't know, the, the role I, I put those in, in ethics, is very different from the role I want to put them in. Like I sort of feel like feeling really, like having a very powerful emotional reaction to a beautiful thing, that's kind of just right. And, and some people think that's just right for ethics too. And maybe it is, but I sort of feel like, but if you're missing it, that's okay. So long as you're against it. So like, you know, some, somebody does some horrible, you see somebody get knifed or something. And, you know, if you're just left cold by that, well, that's, you know, that's kind of weird. And I might be suspicious of that. If you're not like turned up, if you're not grossed out by that, if you don't throw up after you see a knifing, like what's wrong with you. But if you're not, if for whatever reason, you're like just an incredibly cold person, but you nevertheless view that as horrible. You know, you say, yeah, that's wrong. And and you view that pain that the person who got knife suffered as, as a decisive reason against what those people did. Well, then it may be that you're still ethically okay, even though you don't feel like that. That lack of feeling may ultimately not be like constitutive of ethical excellence on your part. But I feel like in aesthetics, maybe it's not, that's not like that. That really is constitutive of, of aesthetic excellence. Like you, you just have to have the feelings. And if you're cold, if you're aesthetically cold, then you're just not an aesthetic aesthetic person. Whereas you can be ethically cold and be an ethical person still. Anyways, things like that. These are the kinds of things I, and, and I say all that maybe, because like it, you may ask me a year from now, I may say, no, that was all wrong. Actually, now that I've worked it all out, they actually have exactly analogous structures and I had to give all that up. And I, I don't know, I, that's kind of where I'm at now, but you know, I'll have to read more and think more and we'll see. Oh, actually, sorry. I think I'm I'm seeing a mute. I I find it. I find what you just said absolutely fascinating, uh, David. And um, and yeah, I think potentially very generative, bringing the sort of these questions about ethics and aesthetics, um, you know, into the same into the same kind of Venn diagram. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, this is wonderful. This this very brief journey. I've had with you and our listeners have had and really showing us, you know, the importance of your work, um, concept building and refining and rebuilding and revising. And also just your, you know, humility here, uh, you know, saying, look, you know, maybe things today, the questions I'm asking today, won't be the ones tomorrow because of the work that I'm doing today. Um, but I, yeah, I just wanted to thank you, David, for sharing all of this. I, on the contrary, I thank you for um, the fun we've had and the opportunity to to share some of this thing with you and with your listeners. I, I really, you know, appreciate that that platform and and um, uh, yeah, I love this stuff. So I'm always happy to talk about it. And um, and you know, I have to say, it's I'm not often, um, you know, as a Cuban, I'm not often called humble. Um, so I'll, I'll, I, I, you know, I very much accept and, uh, I'd like to refeature, I'd like to sort of repeat that to make sure that, 
that lands, uh, you know, there was some humility shown. You know, most people know me would say, wow, he pulled a fast one. Um, so I'll take it. Wonderful. Thanks, David. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.